this morning we're going to begin and we're going to start in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. We're going to take it through chapter 4 of 2 Samuel. And then once we get through that, we're going to focus on some of the Psalms that David wrote during that time. Okay? Now, I want to give a time frame for you so you can kind of wrap your mind around what's going on. So when, from the time that David killed Goliath to the time that Samuel dies, chapter 25 begins with the death of Samuel. So from the time of Goliath to the time of Samuel's death is roughly 12 years, okay? That David has been up and down and on the run from Saul. It's been a long time. It's gotten old. Then from the time of Samuel's death to Saul's death is roughly a year and four months, a year and a half, somewhere in there, okay? And then David becomes king in Hebron, in Judah, but the kingdom is divided and it's another seven and a half years to where we end up at the end of chapter four in 2 Samuel. So here we are. Okay, what we're gonna cover in these chapters is basically 10 years, all right? 10 years of more up and down, back and forth, heartache, heartbreak, falling, sinning, messing up, fear, doubt, a lot of stuff. And my hope is, is that as we go through this, God will really encourage us because we've all been in places and maybe you're in a place now where you're dealing with stuff in your life, trials, hardships, battles, and you have this thought and this prayer to the Lord and it's how long is this going to keep happening? How long is this gonna go on? I'm tired, I'm weak, I'm broken, I'm fed up. God, do you even see? Do you care? These are the things that we find in the Psalms concerning these issues. And I think it makes it even more difficult when we are going through those hardships and those trials and those sufferings through no fault of our own, right? What I do? And we'll see David going, God, if I've done something, okay, I'll take, I'll take the punishment. I'll take the blame. It's okay. If I have, great. And we know, you know, David does this throughout the Psalms where he talks about search me, know my heart, try my anxious thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me. So that introspection there. It's even more difficult, I think, when those hardships and battles come from within our relationships and the people that we love and care about. Because David loved Saul and Saul's family. We'll see that throughout this whole section. It's very evident. And when that tension in that battle is ongoing between us and people we love, that really wears us down. It's heavy. And we just want to give up sometimes. But as we look at the Psalms and the heart behind everything that's going on, 
I hope we'll see the greatness of God, the love of God, the goodness of God, and the hope that in the midst of those battles and hard times where we just want to give up, that God's there, God's in control, and David shows us what to do in the Psalms. It's not an easy path. And I think we need to remember that because, again, we're dealing with the last 10 years before David assumes the throne over all Israel. But again, this is 22 years of just up and down merry-go-round that's just hard. God's got it, okay? So I want to break this down. Chapter 25, as I said, it begins, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah, period. Wow. After all that Samuel did, the last judge, probably the greatest judge of all Israel, he died, and he was mourned, and he was buried. That's it. Now he'll show up in just a little bit. Um, and uh, scare people to death, uh, almost literally. But we won't deal with Nabal and Abigail or any of that because um, in the big picture of things, it's not too important. Just enough to say that at this time, chapter 24 ends with David having the opportunity to take Saul's life. David's run to uh, En Gedi, which is down by the Dead Sea. And there's a lot of caves and everything. And that whole canyon is just pitted with caves and such. So David and his men were hiding there. Saul happens to go into a cave that David and his guys are there. And like, we can take him out now and we can end this. Okay, David, this has been 12 years. We can shut it down right now. God's given him into your hand. Just kill him. And you remember that David just cut a little bit off of his robe and then when Saul left, he's like, hey, I just want you to know I could have taken your life, but I didn't. That's not my heart. I care about you. And I mean no ill will to you. And Saul goes, you know what? I know that you're going to be king. Um, and, uh, you know, God's with you and all. And Saul heads on out. Okay. Then David's going through the countryside of Judea and he's you know, basically taking care of Israel. He's protecting the people from their enemies. He's defending them. Nabal's uh, flocks and his shepherds were part of that protection. And so one day David's like, okay, hey, they're shearing sheep and all of that. It's a time of festivity and food and feasting. Let's send a couple of messengers to go and see if Nabal will just spot us some food and all so that we can have, you know, a feast of our own. And Nabal says, you know what? I am not helping you. You can take a hike. Pound sand, David, I just, I'm not going to help you. I'm not sticking my neck out for you. And David's like, you know what? Everybody, let's get everything together. Give me 300 guys. We're going to go wipe out Nabal's entire household. It's like, dude, you know, you're being chased by Saul. This guy just offends you. And you're going to wipe out his whole family? And fortunately, Abigail, in her wisdom and grace, she goes and interposes herself between Nabal. Her husband's name means fool. And she says to David, look, my husband lives up to his name. All right. And basically, David, you don't be a fool. All right. You don't want to do something here that you're going to regret down the, down the road. All right. And David listens to her. 
God deals with Nabal. He dies, has a heart attack apparently, and then David marries Abigail. Okay, so there's been this little break where David spares Saul's life, Samuel dies, then Dave, uh, Saul goes on the hunt again for David. And that's what we see in chapter 26. So God puts a sleep over the camp of Saul. And David and Abishai go down into the camp. And Abishai, who is Joab's brother, okay, the commander of the army, Joab says to David, dude, here we are again, man. Look what God has given us. We can shut this down now again. We've got a second chance. Take Saul out. All I got to do, his spear is right by his head. I, one strike, man. I stick him, it's over, and we can move on with life. Okay? We'll just get rid of him. And look at what David says. This is in uh, verse 10. David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle to perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is by his head and the jar of water and let us go. So Abishai and David go up on the ridge and then they yell out, Hey, Abner! Now, this is important. Abner is also Saul's, not only the commander of his army, but he's also Saul's uncle, okay? Hey, Abner! You were asleep at the wheel, bud. You're supposed to be protecting the king. We've got the spear. We've got the jug of water. You're not doing your job. And Saul's like, David, my son, is that you? Yeah, it's me. And just to let you know, again, I have no ill will toward you. I could have taken your life, but that's not where my heart is. You know, so often for us, when we are hounded and hurt by people over and over again, we want to exact vengeance. You've hurt me over and over again. I forgive you hurt me. I forgive you hurt me. I forgive you hurt me. I'm tired of it. You know what? You deserve this. But David doesn't do that. He puts it in God's hands. And so look at what Saul says. This is verse 21. And this is important because this is the first time this happens. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Saul up to this point has never confessed his sin. He's always admitted that he was in the wrong, that David was in the right, but he never confessed his sin. I have sinned. Return my son, David. Come home. For I will no more do to you harm, because my life is precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Look at Saul's heart. I'm a sinner. I screwed up bad. I'm not going to pursue you anymore. Come on home. Stop running. You don't have to fear me anymore. Now, unfortunately, Saul was about as stable as, I don't know, a teeter-totter or something. Uh, you know, he's up and down, back and forth all the time. Uh, and David had dodged his share of spears from Saul. He knows, yeah, you know, this can go bad real quick. So in chapter 7, look at what happens. Then David said in his heart, he's pondering these things, and listen. Now that now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul... Wait a minute, Saul just said, I've sinned, come home, 
you'll be safe. He doesn't believe it. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. I'm tired. Twelve years of this. And I've heard this kind of thing before. It's okay. I'm not going to pursue you anymore. We're good. And then he throws another spear at me. Or he hunts me down again. You know what? I know that if I go to the land of the Philistines, he's scared. Saul is not going to pursue me there. And I think this is important for us because sometimes we are dealing with trials and hardships in our lives and we're so worn out from the battle. The Christian life is a battle against the flesh, against Satan and his minions and the world. It's a never-ending battle. And sometimes we just go, you know what? I need a break. I need out. I need to catch my breath. And if we yield to that fear, rather than keeping our eyes on the Lord, rather than keeping our eyes on his promises and his faithfulness and his power and his goodness, and if anybody knows anything about suffering and suffering wrongly, it's our Lord. Look at Jesus. Oh, my word. You know, when he talks about us wrestling against sin, you know, Paul says, you have not wrestled against sin unto bloodshed. Jesus did. You know, he knows about pain and suffering and fighting. He knows hardship. And the encouragement that we have is hang in there and look to the Lord. But David wasn't looking to the Lord. He was, he was buckling. And when he ran to the land of the Philistines, Achish welcomed him. He was the king of the Philistines. And it's like, you know what? David is hated by Saul so much, and this has been going on for so long. Okay, now David had already run to the Philistines once before, but now we've had some time pass, and Achish knows, and the Philistines know, that there is no good, you know, good vibes between David and Saul at all. So Achish says, hey, you guys come in, your army and their families, and I'm going to give you Ziklag as a, as a town, and you just settle in. And for one year and four months, the Bible tells us, they had peace. For a year and four months, it was like, ugh, I don't have to deal with this fight. And when we turn to the world, and when we compromise with the world, Generally, there is a respite and there is some rest and peace. But the day comes where that falls apart. We can't compromise with the world and with sin and not have it blow up in our face. So a year and four months go by and look at what Achish says, chapter 28, verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. I find that ironic. So this is what happens. Everything's cool. Everything's chill. As far as him and Saul for almost a year and a half. But David is living a double life. So what he's doing is he's going into the Negev and into Judea 
and he is attacking the enemies of Israel, all right? So you remember that Israel did not drive out the, the enemies the way that God told them to, all the way from the death of Joshua through the time of the judges to this time, they're still in the land. David is dealing with them. He's protecting the people of Israel. He is dealing with the enemies of Israel. But when Achish talks to him and says, hey, what have you been doing lately, David? He goes, oh, you know, I've been doing raids in the Negev and I've been doing raids in Judea. And uh, yeah, it's been great, you know. Well, Achish thinks he's attacking Israel. He's not. He's attacking the enemies of Israel. And to cover his tracks, to make sure nobody knows what's going on, he wipes out everybody. He's got to do a cover-up. So he's living this double life. And now he's put in a situation where he can't do that. Achish is like, okay, bud, you're coming to war with me and you're going to fight with me against Israel and against Saul. And David says, I'll show you what we can do. Now what happens is, and we see this in chapter 29, what happens is the commanders of the Philistine army say, no way. There is no way we're going to allow David and his men to come with us. Because if he does, what better opportunity is there for him to, right in the middle of battle, turn and attack us from within and then, hey, you know what? Saul's going to go, David, man, you're the guy. Everything's good between us. I have favor with you. And they're like, no, he's going to use this for his benefit to get back into favor with Saul. And we're not letting him and his men come into battle with us. And Achish says, hey, David, I got some bad news. You can't go to war with us. Now, some people have said God was using the Philistine commanders to keep David from making another stupid mistake, stupid choice, and fighting Israel and fighting Saul. I don't believe that. Okay, and this is why. For all this time, David is fighting the enemies of Israel and protecting Israel. David has never fought against the armies of Israel, and David has never lifted his finger to hurt Saul. So why is it that all of a sudden he's going to go to war against his own brothers and against Saul, whom he loves? It makes no sense. I think really what was happening is just what the commanders feared. David's going to go in and he's going to attack from within, and he's going to wipe out the Philistine army. Not so much to gain favor from Saul, but that's what he's been doing from the get-go. He's been protecting Israel from the beginning. Whether or not it's with the authority or the approval or the backing of Saul, he's caring for the people of God. That's what he does, okay? So, I think really the thing that was happening there was what they said, that he was going to attack them from within. Now, here's the thing. This is all going on, this conversation and all. Saul is freaking out. So in chapter 28, verse 5, it says, When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Now, David already knew he was scared of the Philistines. That's why he ran to the Philistines for protection. When Saul inquired of the Lord, get this, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, and you cringe at this moment, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go and inquire of her. 
And the servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium in Endor. Oh, bad call, Saul. See, Saul's dead. I mean, Samuel's dead. So who does David have to rely on solely? God. Now, he ran to Samuel and lived with Samuel for a while when he was trying to keep away from Saul. Where's Saul going to go? God's not talking to him. Prophets aren't talking to him. Nothing's happening. Well, let's see if we can't talk to the dead. All right. And in verse 16, Samuel shows up. God allows Samuel to show up. All right. And look at what Samuel says. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? Saul, why are you asking me what God wants to do and what's going to happen when God himself isn't talking to you? What makes you think I've got a message? Well, God gave Samuel a message and we see it. Verse 19, moreover, the Lord will give Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. And it freaked Saul out. Saul's losing it. He won't eat. He's crushed. The medium, she's like, come on, dude, you got to eat. His men are saying, you got to eat. You have just been given your death sentence from the living God from a prophet of God who is no longer living physically, but God allows him to come and give one final message. What's the last message you get from God before you die? Your number's up. And so the next day comes, Saul and the armies of Israel go into battle against the Philistines. Archers, uh, they hit him, they get Saul, and they take out his sons. Saul's mortally wounded, and he does not want the Philistines to get him. And so what does he do? He commits suicide. What a tragic ending to the first king of Israel. He has gone so low in trying to control his own life that God's not talking to him. God is resisting him. He's going to witches, and he's committing suicide. The world's fallen apart because he took matters into his own hands, because he became prideful and arrogant and self-sufficient and rejected the Lord. And the day to pay up, it came. And they beheaded Saul and his sons, and they hung their bodies on the walls of Beit Shan. Now, to give you an idea, when you're standing in Beit Shan, there's, there's... two Beit Shans, basically. There's the Roman Beit Shan, and it was destroyed by uh, an earthquake, but there's just Roman pillars and all this other, you know, Roman architecture and everything there. It's huge, just beautiful. But there is a high solitary hill, very high, to walk up to the old, uh, the old city of Beit Shan is a chore. And you can see it up there, and so when they hung the bodies on the walls, people could see for a long distance the trophies of the victory of the Philistines on display for everybody. 
Now the people of Jabesh Gilead in their love for Saul at night snuck in, took the bodies down and buried them. And David would honor them for their kindness to Saul and his family. But what a tragic ending. But now what we have is Saul is gone. And David finds himself now in a place that has just been a thing that really never manifests. Up to this point now, it's 14 and a half years, and all of a sudden, Saul's gone. The battle's gone. The tension's gone. Everything's gone. Everything you've ran from, fought against, stood against, hid from, cried about, is gone. What do I do? So David mourns Saul and his family, mourns Jonathan. Chapter 2 of 2 Samuel. This is, this is incredible. So think of all this that we've just talked about. It says, after this, David inquired of the Lord. This has been going on for so long, and now he's like, Lord, all I know is running. All I know is fear. All I know is just trying to survive. What do I do now? Have you ever been in that situation where everything you've been dealing with for a time all of a sudden comes to an end and you're sitting there going, I don't know what to do. I don't know what it's like to live without this issue in my life anymore. I don't know what it's like to not be attacked day and night. I don't know what to do. And so he says to the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Now, Michael, Saul gave to another man. So she's out of the picture for right now as far as a wife. So he's got his two wives now. And what happens is the people of Judah make David king in Hebron. And what we know is that David, it says in verse uh, 11, the time of David, that, the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Seven and a half years. So it's been 14 and a half years of all this Saul stuff, being on the run, being an outlaw. And then he's got seven and a half years where he's king of Judah. But Israel and Judah are not unified. Israel is sided with the house of Saul. Because uh, Abner, his uncle, takes Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and makes him king. And in all probability, Abner was wanting to basically have Ishbosheth be his puppet. And him actually be in charge of, of Israel. And it wasn't going very well. In chapter three, and again, there's all this battling going on between the house of David and the house of Saul. It says in verse one, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. 
So here's this respite now from Saul, but he's just gone from one war into another war. One problem into another problem. And this is going on and on and on. So as Israel is getting weaker and Judah is getting stronger, Abner's looking at it and going, this isn't working. And so he actually uh, takes one of Saul's concubines and has sex with her. Now, this is a way, if you want to assert a right to kingship, this is one of the ways to do it. And that's what Ishbosheth thought that his uncle was doing, okay, great uncle was doing. We see two of David's sons do the exact same thing later in David's life as they try to usur usurp the throne and become kings themselves. So Ishbosheth calls Abner on this, and it's very difficult to keep all these A and Z names all in order because they're crazy. It's like, who is that? But anyway, I think I've gotten it. So, um, but Abner, uh, he says, you know what? All right, you're accusing me of trying to usurp the throne? I'm out of here. I'm siding with David. And he goes to the leaders of Israel and says, look, and this gives us some insight. He says, look, I know you guys have wanted David to be king. Because remember, David was always fighting for them. David was always protecting them, even though he was on the run. He was always there for the people of God. Made his mistakes, screwed up, yes. But his heart was for the people of God. And they wanted him. And he said, I'm going to turn the kingdom into David's hands. And so he went to David. Except that what happened was, David received him. It's like, okay, I welcome you and, and I'm with you. And we'll, let's get this kingdom united. But Joab has a beef against Abner because Abner killed the dude who happens to be Saul's brother, who we saw in the camp with Saul, or Joab's brother. And uh, I'm having a brain cramp. See, I thought I was doing so good, but let he who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Um, as the Bible says, so I cannot remember the cat's name. Uh, so anyway... Uh, so anyway, Joab ended up, where are you? Don't anybody, Abishai, that's the dude, okay? So Joab is the brother of Abishai. Abishai, during all this warring between Saul's house and David's house, Abishai goes on the chase after Abner. Abner's telling him, don't chase me. Stop it, man. I don't want to kill you. Stop it. I don't want to kill you. And Abishai didn't stop. Abner killed him. And now Joab's got a grudge and he's not going to take that line down. So unbeknownst to David, Joab murders Abner. He says, hey, let me, let me talk to you. And so when he leans over to talk to, to uh, Abner, his sword falls out. And so he's like, oh, let me pick that up. And he grabs it and he murders, deceitfully murders Abner. Pays him back for what he did to his brother. But what we see at the end of chapter 3 is that David mourns Abner. He's weeping and he's calling for a time of mourning for Abner. Again, the house of Saul. This ends up being a good thing because it says in verse 20, 35, 
of chapter 3, Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me and more also, if I taste bread or anything else until the sun goes down. He was in mourning over Abner. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything else that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people of Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. Okay? So here's this thing now. We're getting close to unifying the kingdom of Israel. And then Joab pulls this stunt that can really backfire and cause problems. But because of the love that David had for the house of Saul, the people of Israel and the people of Judah saw no. David had no idea this was going on. Look how he's mourning for the house of Saul. Look how he loves the house of Saul. And they're like, this is good. Okay, we can have him as a king. And then there's two people that go in chapter four and they kill Ishbosheth. And uh, the kingdom then, as we'll see next week, will transfer into David's hands, the entire 12 tribes. So that's a rough time span right there. Right now, we've just covered 10 years. And it's a lot of ups and downs, a lot of heartache, a lot of frustration, a lot of deceit, a lot of garbage. So what I want us to do now is to go over to Psalm 6. And from here, we're going to look at some things that we can learn from as we look at the heart of David that can help us in those times where we're going, I can't take this anymore. I can't handle this anymore. So chapter 6, Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, verse 1, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord. For my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, Lord, how long? All right? How long? We know this has been going on for a while. One of the things that people have against David is they'll look at what he says in the Psalms and they go, how can, Psalm say, or how can David say he was righteous? How can he say that he did no wrong? When was that Psalm written? What was going on? What's the background? What's the heart? Okay, that's important for us to know. So knowing what we know now about what was happening, we understand this. God, how long? Come on. You know, I'm tired of this. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. The Lord's been with him the whole time. For in death, there's no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I can relate to what's about to be said here. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Have you had those nights where you're just all you can do is just cry into your pillow. Or you just go out in the backyard or get in the car and you go for that drive. 
and you're just weeping and grieving and he can't take it anymore. Lord, hear my prayer. I know you'll hear my prayer. In chapter 7, Psalm 7, there's an important element to this though. In verse 3, look at what he says. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if, if this is my doing, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. And then it says, Selah, meditate on that. So often I think we have a tendency not to want to look at ourselves when we're in those times of heartache and trouble and, you know, we're suffering. It is always wise for us to look to the Lord and say, is this a result of my sin? Am I doing anything? And this is how you're bringing this to my attention? Are you disciplining me? Remember, because the scriptures tell us in Hebrews, that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes we suffer because, hey, you know what? People are just mean sometimes. You know, we're mean sometimes. But sometimes it's because of stuff we've done and God is correcting us. And we need to keep that in mind because as soon as we have that mindset of pointing our fingers at other people, and blaming other people rather than taking time to see, rather than judging a speck in somebody else's eye, like Jesus says, to make sure we don't have a good, solid, you know, like sequoia log. You know, if you've ever been around a sequoia, that's a big tree, okay? We got to make sure we don't have one of those sticking out of our eye. And that's the crazy thing is when we have a beam in our own eye, it makes it hard to see. And so we need to have that heart that David did. Search me, O God. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. And if he's not correcting us, praise God. You know, then he's using this for us to learn other things. Let's go over to Psalm chapter 9. This is another thing that we need to keep at the forefront of our mind. We'll look at verses 7 through 10. And this is David's perspective. And as long as he has this perspective, it's good. When he loses this, it's not. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. It is difficult when we look at the world around us or when we are suffering while other people are being blessed, when we are struggling, when other people in their sin are doing great and going, what's going on here? King Asa had this problem in his psalm. He's going, 
you know, all my life I've been serving you, I've been following you, and I'm going through stuff, but the wicked, they're prospering. They're having a great life. They're doing wonderful. I'm not. You ever feel like that? Why am I following the Lord? This is hard. This sucks. I'm tired. Look at the world. They're having a blast. That's what Asa's heart was looking at. And then he says, then I entered the house of the Lord. And I understood their end. He's like, oh, I get it. As somebody once said, this life is the only hell that the saint will ever know. And this life is the only heaven the sinner will ever know. God is just. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. But he desires, as he says twice in Ezekiel, that all would repent. He loves people, but he's also just. And as David understands, he's on the throne and he will judge rightly. That's why he kept rolling things back onto the Lord where Saul was concerned. I know God will take care of it. God will deal with it. I'm not sticking my hand in this thing. God's got it. But look at verse 10. And those who know your name put their trust in you. This is one thing I think that many Christians have a difficult time with. We don't trust the Lord because we don't know the Lord. Now, we might be Christians. We might be saved. But we really don't know him. We don't spend time with him. We go to church. We might pick up our Bible here and there. We believe in him, but we're not abiding with him. We're not living our life with him. And you see this in relationships. You see it in marriages where you have people who are living together and they don't know each other. You know, Jennifer and I had a stint several years ago where we were so busy doing things and doing ministry and all of that. And then it, you know, I pulled out of ministry for a while. God had me step out. And it was like, we're looking at it going, and our kids were older and we're going, who, who are we? Outside of running around crazy, doing ministry, doing family stuff and everything, who are we? Who are you? And it was good because we were able to reconnect and our marriage and our relationship and our love just grew sweeter because of that time. But it is so easy to be in a relationship with somebody and not know that person. And if we really know the Lord, it is much easier to trust the Lord. But if he's just a savior and nothing more, if he's just the man upstairs, and that's all we know, when it comes time where the rubber meets the road and we need to hold on to him, are we going to really trust him? The better we know him, the more we're going to love him and the more we're going to trust him. And I'm not saying it's easy, okay? There's been times where I've been just like Israel, where God's done things. That's like, man, I'm never going to doubt God again. And you know what? Down I go. And I freak out the next time a trial or a hardship comes. You know, 
and I call it, I, I attend God's school for remedial education, okay? It's just like, okay, we, we, we failed that test. All right, Ernest, you're gonna, we're gonna repeat the first grade again. Let's try this again, okay? Open up your book, you know. It's, it's not that bad, but it's like, okay, Ernest, let's, 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 let's do this again, all right? We'll, we'll get through it, I'm with you. But see, that's the key. Focusing on the Lord and that abiding. Let's go over to chapter 16 of Psalm. Look at what we have here. This is focusing on the Lord. If we're going to know the Lord, we've got to focus on the Lord. Verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. What, what do I want out of life? What do I want most? The Lord is my portion. I choose him. He is my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. And look at this, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. We choose where we focus. When David was focusing on Saul, focusing on his heartache, focusing on being disappointed, that's when he says, you know what, I'm running to the Philistines. And it goes sideways. That's when he goes and he runs to Ahithophel, the priest, and lies and says, oh, uh, Saul sent me on a, on, a, on a mission here and I need some food. Uh, you happen to get a sword anywhere, you know? And Ahithophel's like, well, we don't have any sword here. He's, he's in the tabernacle. Except we've got the sword of Goliath. You can have that. Now here's David scared, getting ready to run to the Philistines for help. And Ahithophel says, you want a sword? Here's a sword. It's the sword of the one that God gave into your hands when all you had was a sling and a stone and you came against the giant with the power and the faith in the Almighty God. And I think, David, how come you didn't look at that sword and go, what am I thinking? Look at the faithfulness of God. Look at the power of God. Look at the goodness of God. I am not going to the Philistines. But you know what? Even with all the reminders of what God has done for us, sometimes we just take our eyes off the Lord. David did, we do. Fortunately, God is faithful. We want to always set the Lord before us because he's at our right hand. Remember, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He says, I will not be shaken. Look at verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Is that a Jesus statement right there? Yeah. Verse 10 is a prophetic verse of how Jesus would go to the grave, but his body would not see corruption for the Lord would raise him up on the third day. Where was Jesus' focus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he swept blood? 
getting ready to bear the full wrath of the living God upon himself for the sins of all humanity. It was on the Father. That's where his eyes were locked. On the cross, his eyes were on the Father. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus kept the Father before him. The Father was right there with him. Jesus knew it. He knew how it was going to end. But it didn't make it any more comfortable as he's sweating blood under the strain and the stress of what was about to take place. But he knew the Lord would be faithful. He kept his eyes on the Father. Let's go to Psalm 27. To keep our eyes on the Father, we need to abide. We need to dwell with the Lord, hang with the Lord. Verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He's at my right hand. I mean, that's what we saw in 16. The Lord is the stronghold, the fortress of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? One thing I have asked, this is verse 4, and that will I seek after. Where's my focus? What am I looking at? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Not when I get to heaven. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord the days of my life. I want to be in relationship with the Lord now. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in the shelter, in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Where do I want to be? I want to be in the house of the Lord. What I want to see, I want to seek the beauty of the Lord. I want to behold his presence. I want to put the Lord before me continually because there is my safety. There is my stronghold and my rock. Let's go over, we'll look at two more Psalms. Let's go to 121. And we see God's faithfulness as he keeps us. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where am I looking? This is that focus thing again. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the one who made heaven and earth. Who is my help? The almighty creator of all things. The alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. The one who called out of nothing everything. The almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, I am. That's who I look to. It's hard sometimes, but this is what David's saying. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber or sleep. I wonder if he was thinking about Abner. You know, he's out cold. He's sleeping. Saul's sleeping. Everybody else is sleeping. You know, God will not fall asleep on his watch over you, okay? Sometimes it seems that way. Hey, are you awake up there, Lord? Do you see what's going on? Yeah, he does. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. 
The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What do you mean he will keep you from all evil, David? You faced evil for 22 years. You were going through the ringer for 22 years. What do you mean he will keep you from all evil? We all deal with evil. We get hurt, we get abused, we get kicked. We've got stuff coming from Satan, from the world, internally, other people. What do you mean keep us from all evil? I love what Alexander McLaren says about this passage. Okay? And keep in mind where it says, and I think in Romans, he works all things together for the good, who love him and are called according to his purpose. Okay? All things even those things that appear evil. Listen to what McLaren says. All evil will be averted from him who has Jehovah for his keeper. Therefore, if any so-called evil comes, he may be sure that it is good with a veil on. It may look like evil. It may be a scary monster. But it's good. Because God will work all things together for our good. We may not understand it. We may not see it in this life. But life is much bigger than this short time on earth. He works it all for good. He will keep us from evil. And what happens that looks like evil... We would identify it as evil. It's for our good. And the last one, Psalm 130. So what do we do? How do we wrap this all up? Remember, we begin with David going in verse, uh, Psalm 6. How long? How long? Now, 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, David had plenty of them, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More for the watchman, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Wait for the Lord. If David had just waited in a few instances, it would have made all the difference. Now God still was able to work it all out for good, and he knew what David would do. But when we're in those times of trouble and heartbreak and frustration and suffering, the thing that we can do, the best thing to do, is wait on the Lord. What do you want me to do? When do you want me to do it? That's what we see after Saul's death. He doesn't go, ha ha, now we go in and we take the kingdom. That's when he stops and goes, Lord, what do you want me to do now? Okay, what, what's, what's your plan? 
Where do you want me to go? Okay, Hebron. All right, I got you. All right. Oh, it's going to be another seven and a half years? Okay. And the Lord works it all out to where with all the junk that was going on, the entire kingdom of Israel, all 12 tribes, love David. And we have a unified kingdom for the first time. The Lord loves you and he will keep you. He paid for you with the blood of his son. And if anybody knows suffering and hardship, it's our savior. If anybody knows what it's like to go through the ringer, it's our savior. And so we can look to him and seek strength and wisdom and comfort, knowing that his timing is perfect. And he will work all things together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He loves his children. The old, some of you in here will remember, I just see the, the reruns, okay? I'm not that old. No offense. Father Knows Best, the old TV show. Our Heavenly Father knows best. He does it the right way all the time. He's got you. Wait on Him. He'll get you through. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that you do not tell us to trust you, to wait upon you, to look to you, to hold to you without knowing firsthand what it's like to go through that. You've walked in our shoes. The Son of God, for 33 years, walked in our shoes, knowing the things that we deal with on a daily basis, knowing heartache and suffering and pain and maligning and reproach and hostility and all sorts of junk culminating in giving his life as a ransom for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh Lord, we praise you and we can bank on your love and your faithfulness to us because you proved it on the cross. And so help us to hold to you to set you and you alone before us in everything that we go through. In Jesus' name, amen. 